Welcome to the Rimfire Tactical Podcast. This is your host, Chris, from rimfiretactical.com, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome to episode 36, everyone. I'm glad you're here. I hope each of you are staying safe and staying healthy during this uh, pandemic that we're experiencing. You know, it's unprecedented times, and um, <laughs> I've you know, come up with all these different names or heard of these different names from the COVID chronicles to uh, Frank Galley calls it the pajama pandemic. Um, it's definitely something that uh, I don't think any of us, if you would have told us three months ago or four months ago, this is what we'd be doing in um, this time of the year. You know, we would could have in, ever in our wildest dreams imagined anything like this. Um, I've talked to some folks recently some clients of mine that have been working out of their home for the last couple of months, uh, just like myself and most other people, it seems. I mean, even though I'm in an industry that's considered essential uh, with my real job, um, I'm able to and, and fortunate that I'm able to work from home and uh, and have kind of been forced into that to an extent just because of the, uh, from the standpoint of um, where we live, we don't have any family that's really close by and uh, no one really to even watch our kids. So I've been working it from home for, uh, this is the eighth week at this point. Um, and at the same time, um, taking care of, uh, a few different businesses that we have. And then in addition to that, having the, uh, uh, take care of my clients and, and being a homeschool parent too. So it's been interesting to say the least. Um, but, you know, during all of this, it's interesting as I'm talking with folks, uh, this is where the pajamic pandemic thing comes in so accurately, um, talking with people and seeing um, and hearing how they're handling their time, you know, that's being spent at home. Um, it seems like a lot of people within the first week or two, a lot of people kind of um, the first week was kind of panic and oh my gosh, you know, we got to do something. And, um, and I think anytime you have a, a stressful scenario, uh, of course, like I said before, this is so unprecedented, but even something as simple as uh, storm warnings, whether it's snow or hurricanes or whatever, you know, whenever there's something um, like that, I find it interesting just kind of watching how people respond or react. Um, you know, some people are calm, cool, collected. They have a plan. They um, they go about their plan and get everything done that needs to be done. Others sort of, uh, and, th and those people, those are the ones that are responding. And then you have the people that react, the ones that are like, oh, my gosh, you know, the sky's falling, chicken little, so to speak. Um, and those are the ones that typically are the first ones to run to the supermarket and, you know, they're, they're buying up all the, the milk and the eggs and stuff like that. Um, of course, you know, with this pandemic, um, you know, the, the press has been all over so many people hoarding up toilet paper and, um, what is it? Lysol and, you know, hand sanitizer, Purell, stuff like that. Um, it's, it's interesting to see how that works. And, you know, I'm, 
as I, I talk with people, I've got clients, fortunately, uh, not just in my area, but all over the country. And as I talk with them, you know, a lot of folks are hanging out at home. And I talked to someone the other day who said they hadn't put on any pants in the last, I think they said six or seven weeks, they haven't had on any pants that didn't have elastic in them. Basically, no jeans, no no pants with a button. Everything has elastic. And they're like, you know, we haven't stepped on the scales. And, um, and if you haven't heard of this, you know, a lot of people are referencing the Corona 15 or the COVID 15. Um, basically the same concept as when kids go away to college and they, that first, usually it's not even the first year, but the first semester of college, uh, they tend to gain about 15 pounds and it's always been called the freshman 15. So a lot of people are referring to this as the COVID 15 or the Corona 15. And, um, I mean, it's easy to do, you know, it's, it's really easy to, to, uh, gain some weight. And especially if you're not putting on your normal clothes that you wear day in, day out, you know, maybe a surprise. So when I heard Frank Galley calling it the pajama pandemic, I just started laughing because I was like, that's really accurate for a lot of the folks I'm talking to. But, uh, you know, during this time, um, as I'm, you know, not only talking with clients, but also talking with people in the, the gun industry, because, because, you know, even though it's not a, it's, I'm not in the gun industry in the, from the business sense. I mean, obviously I'm, you know, it's near and dear to my heart and something I really enjoy being a part of, you know, in any way I can, whether it's, you know, someone that's out buying guns and scopes and ammo, or if it's, uh, you know, hosting the podcast or shooting in matches or running the Facebook group or the website, um, you know, it's just, it's a passion project of mine. So something I truly enjoy. And a lot of people, it seems like there's this, this progression. Um, I, I heard an article talking about shopping habits and um, I see some correlations. There was a, uh, a news report that was done and I believe the guy, I can't remember his title, but he somewhere in upper management in um, the Walmart corporation. And basically uh, they were, the news reporter was asking for information on what people are buying. And he said, well, you know, it started off, um, people were running in and buying up all the toilet paper and the uh, hand sanitizer, the Lysol, uh, any kind of disinfectants and cleaners. That was the initial rush. And then it seemed like uh, once people had bought that stuff up and, you know, other people would come in and didn't see it there. So, you know, it created this irrational fear of, oh my gosh, you know, there must be something going on. I can't get toilet paper. So, you know, the, the irrational thought process takes over and suddenly everybody has this incredible sense of, um, I've got to go out and get toilet paper. And then the people who have toilet paper feel like the other people are getting more toilet paper. So then the, the people who already have toilet paper buy more toilet paper. And it's just, it, it's interesting to, you know, the, the concept of stockpiling anything. I mean, there's, there's being prepared and then there's stockpiling. And on the same side or same token though, um, you know, we've seen this happen with ammunition and stuff through the years as well. But anyway, the guy said that, you know, that was the start of it. Toilet paper, um, disinfectants, cleaning supplies, things like that. That was the very first thing that people bought. 
sorry, a little coffee there. And so then after it went from um, buying up all those things to then people started um, stocking up on food. And it was all of the stuff that has a long shelf life, canned goods, um, you know, soups, beans, um, the dry stuff like rice, you know, things like that. Things that you could buy in huge quantities. It's very inexpensive and, you know, again, has a, a long shelf life. And what, um, at, at the same time that they were buying up all that, a lot of people are also buying up tons of water, cases and cases and cases of uh, bottled water, whether it's in the, the small 12 or 16 ounce or 20 ounce bottles or even the gallon jugs and things like that. People are buying that up in massive quantities. And now what has been interesting in the transition is people went from um, buying those things and something else that got bought really early on as well um, was all the fitness stuff. So once the states started shutting down businesses, a lot of people figured out, oh, my gosh, I can't go to the gym to work out. And a lot of people who work out. Uh, at, at a gym, don't necessarily have weights and things to work out at home. So they went out and bought all of that stuff too. That was during that early phase with like the toilet paper and things like that. So then later on, um, in addition to buying up all the canned goods and things, about that same time, they started seeing an increase in the sale of, uh, like they were already sold out of weights and things like that to work out. So then they started seeing an increase in the sale of other items like bicycles. Um, you know, something else that people could get exercise, something else they could go and do. Um, they also saw an increase in the sale of tennis shoes and things like that because people are starting to go out and walk around their neighborhoods and do different things like that. And then um, the, the most recent stage has been one where people were coming in and they're buying up uh, the meat and whether it's meat or uh, chicken or fish, things like that, because I guess now there's concern of a shortage of you know meat and things like that because of the uh, processing plants, I guess, where people work in close proximity. You know, there's, I guess, reports that the COVID-19 virus seems to thrive in those environments where people are working close by or whatever. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I don't spend enough time watching it because, frankly, I'm tired of hearing about it. But here I am talking about it in this episode. So there you go. So um, outside of those things, the other thing that uh, they've seen a spike in is activities to keep people busy. And those activities included things like uh, puzzles, uh, workbooks like the word search games, crossword puzzles, Sudoku, those types of, of things. So it's interesting because if you think about your typical Walmart store, the only things that haven't been really impacted, oh, the other thing, they, they said they sell a huge increase in movie sales, like people buying DVDs, uh, video game systems, video games. Uh, they've seen a huge increase there. Um, the toys, I don't think, they didn't mention the toy department per se, 
as anything that you know had uh, that large of an increase in sales, but like the puzzles and those those board games, things along those lines, they've seen a, a spike in sales. Um, and then, uh, like I said, you know, bicycles and, and all that stuff. So you've seen this this whole little shift where people have kind of transitioned almost from like department to department or or aisle to aisle. If you think about your typical Walmart or, or big box store and what they're buying and buying in large quantities. Um, now, the interesting thing is um, if the COVID-15 uh, you know, thing comes through with the, the, the or Corona 15 or call it what you want, quarantine 15, people gaining weight. Walmart could also see and other places too. I'm just using Walmart's example because that's where this guy worked. You know, they could also see an increase in some clothing sales at the same time because some people are going to have to get some new clothes to, to fit into. But it's interesting as I was listening to this guy talk to think of how people are transitioning and what they're doing and things in the gun world. And, you know, it's interesting because you can watch it in both the Facebook groups, the gun forums. You can you can see ten, uh, tendencies for things to change or topics as they come up. And I think during that first few weeks, you know, people were trying to figure out what to do and how to adjust. And then after that, um, whether they were watching TV or whatever for a while, you know, reality seemed to set in with a lot of folks. This may, you know, this is going to last longer than we thought. And so people started doing different things. And one of the, the main things that I, I've heard so many people talk about is they started cleaning, started cleaning their house. Well, you know, we're not going to talk about cleaning houses, but what we are going to talk about is, you know, what happens when you're cleaning up your gun room or your safe or your, your bench or whatever you call it, <clears throat> you know, where you keep your stuff. And what has happened during this time frame is a lot of people have realized, man, I didn't know I had so many extra sets of uh, scope rings or I didn't realize I had so many old scopes or I'd forgotten about, you know, this rifle that doesn't have a scope on it or this scope that doesn't have a rifle or uh, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, they're, they're realizing that there's some, some, something that they can do. And um, we, I've seen, you know, a real change in the topics that are coming up uh, in the Facebook group. And like I said, on different uh, forums as well. And it's interesting because I've kind of went through the same progression myself. And so um, during the time as I've been organizing and figuring out, you know, what's this, what's that, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's easy to um, sometimes if you've, you know, got a couple of rifles in particular that you like to shoot or something, it's easy for some others to sort of be forgotten about or pushed to the back and kind of, uh, it's kind of one of those things where it's sort of that out of sight, out of mind. Now I've talked to, um, you know, a bit in the past about uh, some of the past episodes about some of the older rifles that are out there that are just, they're great rifles, um, but don't necessarily get talked about in the context of uh, the Rimfire Tactical Facebook group very much or anything. Um, and a lot of it, 
it's not because of anything uh, bad about these types of rifles. It's more to do with the differences in the old designs versus new designs and the way that shooting has changed in some of the games that we play, if you will. Um, one of the most iconic rimfires in history has been the Winchester 52B. And there's been so much written about those things through the years. And I've talked about them in previous episodes. Uh, mainly what I've talked about is, uh, if, you, if you haven't listened to one of the, you know, those other episodes, no worries, I'll fill you in. What I've talked about is this. <clears throat> the, there's so many different variations of the 52s from the pre-A to the 52A, the B, C, D, E. I think there's even an F and a G maybe. There's a bunch of them. And they were made for a long time by Winchester. And um, those subtle variations from one model to the next, there would be minor changes. And because there's so many different models, you have people who find or feel that one particular model is better than another. Some are supposedly more accurate than others, or they're more refined. Um, at the end of the day, the reality to me is that they're an iconic rifle and one that uh, definitely is you know worth owning. But my history with them has been one where uh, growing up, I didn't know a single person who had one, so I really wasn't that familiar with them. And then later on, as I became familiar with them, all that I knew is they were really, um, I felt, expensive, um, especially at the time. Uh, they're expensive and they're old. And not that old is bad, but you know, when you're young, uh, sometimes old is not as attractive as the, new, the flashy new thing. But not only are they old, but because there's so many variations, it was really difficult to get a good feel for the differences from one model to the next. And specifically, um, what would I do with a rifle like that? And I know that may sound like a dumb question, but when I would look at uh, the, the few examples that I had come across through the years, and I really hadn't seen that many, um, a lot of them were either in really rough shape or they were pristine. And it didn't seem like there was a lot of in-between. The ones that were in really rough shape, you know, they just looked really rough. They looked beat up and, and uh, that wasn't very appealing to me. But the, because even though they were beat up, they were still as much or more than I could buy a new modern rifle, like a, you know, at the time, a CZ-452. Um, it's a perfect example. Um, the other thing that factored in was even though those rough older model or the rougher uh, models of the 52, the ones that would be so beat up and everything, they were still selling for so much. Um, the other thing I would always think about is, gosh, these things have a 28 inch barrel. Um, most of the ones that I've ever seen, I know there's some that aren't uh, necessarily a heavy barrel, but most of them that I've ever encountered are. And so between the stock and the 28 inch heavy barrel, you know, these are big, heavy rifles, so not exactly something you're going to take around, you know, hunting squirrels or something. And for a long time, that was the majority of my shooting. So not knowing 
enough about the differences from one model to the next. I always stayed away from them. Um, I thought at some point I'll buy one, but you know, I'll either I'll I'll find one that's in really great shape at a great price that uh, is a shooter because I, I I didn't want to just be a collector. I like to shoot. Otherwise, you know, I, I just don't really like having something I can't shoot. I mean, I can go online and look at pictures and that does as much for me as having a rifle here that I'm not going to shoot. So, um, I got to be friends with a guy a few years ago who had a, uh, he's a huge, uh, 52 fan and he was, you know, really selling me hard on why I should, should get a 52. And, um, not long afterwards, I came across one that it was priced at a point where I was willing to spend the money to see if, in fact, I would like the rifle. Um, it was priced the way that it was because it had been modified. Um, the stock had had some issues, and so it has a very visible repair. Um, the barrel had been shortened from 28 inches down to 24. And, you know, to a collector, those things are... Um, that's a big, big deal to somebody that wants to shoot it. You know, I didn't feel like that was, it was that big of an issue. Um, the stock was something that, you know, I could always buy a replacement stock if it shot well, but, um, especially over the last few years as I've become so enamored with PRS style matches and NRL 22, uh, the 28 inch barrel to me is uh, more of a detriment than a benefit. Um, especially if you do some research on the ballistic side, uh, depending on who you talk with, uh, the general consensus is that a 22 long rifle gets the, uh, the peak or optimum, um, velocity within the first 16 to 18 inches of the barrel. Um, some people say 20 to 22 at the, at the longest, uh, unlike on a center fire where, uh, center fire rifle will lose velocity with a 16 or 18 inch barrel uh, versus having a longer 26 or 28 inch barrel. The the longer barrel will produce a much faster velocity. But on rim fires, it seems like as the barrel gets longer, uh, you actually will see a reduced velocity. Um, it's almost like there's an additional drag on the bullet. And so, uh, like I said, the 28 inch barrel just didn't really appeal to me. And this particular rifle, it, it was priced at a point where I was willing to take a risk. So the day I brought the rifle home, I looked at it, put it in the safe and thought, eh, I'll deal with it tomorrow. And the next day I thought about it. And, and frankly, I was almost sick that I'd bought the thing because I was like, what have I done? Why have I bought this thing? You know, the stock's jacked up. Um, the barrel's been shortened. Who knows how well this was done? You know, and I started second guessing everything, and essentially, I just moved the rifle to the back of the the the, the gate um, safe. <clears throat> and my thought was, I'll just sell it at some point. Um, and and that was really the plan for the last few years. And I had it listed a couple of times on some different uh, forums, and people would ask questions about how it shot. And you know, I was always very upfront. Told them, I don't know, I haven't shot the rifle, and. Um, you know, ultimately I would have some offers, but they were always really low and that just wasn't, you know, I wasn't in a position where I had to sell it. So it's just sat there. Um, 
so about three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I thought, you know, I've got this thing sitting there. Might as well just do something with it. So I ordered a scope mount for it. Now, there's a number of companies that make mounts for the 52s. But uh, the one I went with was from EGW. And the reason I went with the EGW versus a few others is uh, 100% because it was cheaper. Um, you know, my thought was I don't have a lot of confidence that this rifle is going to do anything to impress me. Um, I think the EGW mount was 25 or 30 bucks. And at the time, um, I didn't, I couldn't tell a difference between that mount versus any of the others. So got the mount, um, started going through some extra scopes that I have. And, um, there's something that, that I came across that I had forgotten about, uh, but years and years ago, when I first started getting into shooting rimfire at the time, I was shooting a lot from the bench. And I remembered reading an article, and I can't remember what the name of the gun writer. I don't know. Um, it used to be I read gun magazines all the time, and all those guys kind of go together. But at some point, I remembered reading an article probably when I was in my teens or maybe in my, in my early 20s where the gun writer was talking about how anytime he would get a new rifle, he had what he called a slave scope that he would mount on the rifle to get the, just like find the ultimate accuracy in the rifle. And, um, I don't remember what he was using, but I remember, you know, thinking that seemed odd, but then he went on to explain he had a, it was a very high magnification scope and it was one that tracked properly. And so he didn't have to worry about any issues with the scope. But in his experience, it was easier to shoot small groups, whether he was shooting, and he was talking about center fires, not rim fires. But if he was shooting groups at 100 yards or whatever the distance was, it was easier to do that with a high magnification scope than, than to do the same thing with like a three to nine variable, which is, I think, probably still the most popular scope for uh, hunting. And I remember thinking that concept sounded intriguing. And at some time during that process, or about that time, same time frame, I came across a rifle that I purchased, which had a Tasco 8 by 32 um, scope on it. I think it's 8 by 32 by maybe 40. Um, and I, at the time, I didn't have a lot of confidence in the scope. Um, I didn't have the best experience with Tascos when I was a kid. Um, but this particular scope through the years had always seemed to be uh, just a good example. The The tracking was good, although rarely did it get moved around. I certainly wasn't dialing dope you know, with my um, these rifles I've had through the years uh, with this scope. But what I had figured out was this scope was really handy for putting on different rifles, primarily 22s, just to see what kind of accuracy they would produce. And, you know, I came across that scope and I thought, hey, I've got this old rifle. I've got this old Tasco. I'll just put that on and let's let's go to the range and see what happens. And, um, you know, during that time when I was putting everything together, I had zero expectations. Once I got to the range, um, I didn't plan to test a bunch of ammo or anything um, 
15 or 20 years ago, when I first got into shooting silhouette and things, I had picked up a uh, few boxes of SK standard at my local gun shop. Uh, they had told me that was a really popular um, ammo that people were using when they were shooting 22 silhouette because with silhouette, you're not allowed to use hollow points. And frankly, growing up, that's all we ever shot were hollow points because we weren't really going out plinking and, and just shooting as much as we were hunting. And if we were shooting a gun, we were, you know, making sure it was ready to go for hunting. So with this particular um, SK standard, what I realized is it shot exceptionally well in every rifle I owned. And through the years, um, you know, that has continued to be the case. And before I forget, because I'm sure you're saying, how the heck didn't, can you shoot, you know, the same few boxes through the years? What I had happened back then was I saw just phenomenal results with a new CZ 452. This is back when they were only making the 452s. Um, had a 452 varmint that I had bought. And I was shooting this SK standard in it, and it was just shooting so incredibly well. Well, I tried that SK standard in a Ruger 77-22 and several other rifles that I owned at the time. And lo and behold, um, that ammo shot better in those rifles than any other ammo I had tried. And uh, I think I might have had one rifle at the time that had another round that had shot just a little better. But it wasn't good enough to justify buying more of that ammo. And I can't remember what it was now. I think it was Federal Ultra Match, which was a lot more expensive um, than just shooting the SK Standard. So I went back to the gun shop because I had heard or read online, I guess, how important it was that if you found a lot, uh, a certain lot of ammo that shot good in your rifle, that you should buy all of it you could. And um, I definitely didn't have the money for it, but I went back to my local shop where I'd bought it and I asked them, you know, if they had any more of that particular lot number. Well, it so happened that they had ordered, they had been ordering a bunch of this SK uh, and also Wolf Match Extra and Wolf Match Target. Um, because people were, that's what most people were flocking to, uh, to shoot. And so when they ordered all this stuff, it, I happened to be lucky enough to buy, uh, a few boxes out of the first brick that they took out of a full case of this ammo. And so we started looking and it just so happened they had another full case that hadn't been opened yet that had this, that was of the same lot number. And so I ended up buying um, the case that hadn't been opened and the case that had been opened. Um, they had taken one brick out and, and put those 10 boxes on the shelf. I had purchased two of those boxes and then um, out of the remaining eight, they had sold like four or five. So I ended up with almost two full cases of this ammo and I didn't have um, I didn't have the money for that, but what I did have was a rifle that did not shoot nearly as well as it should. And so I ended up trading a, a Ruger 77-22, one of the, uh, I think they call it the all-weather. It's the 
the stainless barreled action the laminate stock. It's a beautiful rifle. I've just never had any luck with getting one to shoot. And so I traded that thing in um, and ended up getting both cases of ammo and also was able to pick up um, a, uh, I think it was a set of scope rings or something. But I just remember telling my father about it and he thought I was crazy because I had traded a gun for ammunition. But um, ultimately over the years, that ammo has always shot exceptionally well. And it's become the ammunition that I use whenever I'm getting a new rifle. Um, you know, that's, without, well, that's what I use to set the baseline for the accuracy. And over the, the course of, like I said, a long time, I've had several instances where that ammo was the best shooting ammo I found with a particular rifle. But I've also had some other rifles that did shoot something else better. Um, but typically, it's been my experience. If it shoots the SK well, I know I'm, you know, I'm in good shape with the rifle. If it doesn't shoot the SK well, then I typically have never found anything else that a particular rifle would shoot well. Um, so, uh, and, and on a side note about the the ammo, about four or five years ago. I came across a fellow who had a bunch of uh, Benchrest stuff for sale. He had been a Benchrest shooter for years and decided to sell off uh, all of his stuff. He'd retired and was no longer shooting. And we talked about some of his rifles and some scopes and things. And it just wasn't, um, it wasn't really a good fit for me. I'm not a Benchrest shooter. Um, but in conversation, I asked about some ammo or he mentioned that he had ammo for sale. And, um, so I ended up buying a lot. And when I say a lot, like I think it was when it was all said and done, it was about eight or 9,000 rounds of ammo. And it was everything from Ely 10X and Ely match target. So uh, he told me, he said, I have a case, almost a full case of SK standard. And his, this is his exact words. He said, I know what you're thinking. Why does this guy that's shooting Ely and, and Benchrest, why does he have all this SK standard? Uh, he said, I, I just, I had to keep it because it shot so well. And um, he's like, so, you know, it's, it's, it's good stuff. Believe it or not, when I bought that ammo from him, I didn't realize it at the time. But when I started putting that ammo away, I realized it was the same lot of SK standard that I had purchased from my local gun shop all those years before. So, I mean, this is some old ammo, but, but I mean, I was ecstatic. And so I took some of his and shot it because I was just curious uh, because one of the things about ammunition is, you know, they can be a great lot, but if it hasn't been properly stored or something, you know, it may not shoot well, but it, it shoots great. So I took this 52 to the range and I also took another rifle. I'll tell you about that one real quick. And, uh, and then we'll wrap this up. The other, another rifle that I've had for a few years, and it's one that I've talked on some previous episodes about how I went through a stage where I wanted to get some, some rifles that were designed to be shot with irons. Um, and I picked up a few, um, here and there. Um, and then very quickly realized I don't enjoy shooting irons. Um, and so this, and I figured that out before I ever even shot this particular rifle, but it's a Remington 540X. 
And if you're not familiar with the 540X, uh, it's just, it was a trainer. Um, it's a single shot trainer. It has a grooved receiver, but it was designed to shoot um, with irons as well. And, um, you know, it's a neat rifle. It's got the, uh, uh, it's got a rail in the forehand for hand stops or, uh, in my case, um, a bipod uh, stud. And, um, you know, it's, it's a neat rifle. Mine had definitely seen better days, but in my mind, it just made sense to pick it up. Even though the stock had some nicks and things in it, the bluing was good. And I thought, you know, it's lighter weight rifle. It has a uh, uh, adjustable length of pull, and you can also raise and lower the butt plate uh, depending on whether you're shooting irons or shooting scoped. And um, and the, the, the stock or, or the uh, the butt plate will collapse close enough that it would be ideal as a uh, trainer for my daughters to use. So I got this rifle, you know, thinking all those things. And then, like I said, figured out that I didn't like uh, shooting irons. So just like the 52, I'd actually had that, that 540X for sale a couple of times on a few different gun forms. And the two questions that would always come up is, what sights do you have with it? Well, I had none. I didn't have sights, or I didn't have sights when I got it, and I never bought sights for it. I had sights on the sole and figured out I didn't like shooting <laughs> the sights, so it is what it is. And then the next question everybody would ask, how does it shoot? And just like the 52, I would say, I don't know. I don't know because I bought this thing and, uh, you know, figured out after I bought it that it's probably a dumb move and shouldn't have done that. Well, on this particular one, I went looking for scopes and scope rings. And uh, this is the thing about, you know, hanging on to uh, not only scope rings, but other stuff. Sometimes it's best to hang on to those things um, just in case you need them. And um, so I started looking around and I found a set of one inch rings for a grooved receiver. And then I started looking for scopes and I have had exceptionally good results with a scope that I would not recommend per se as one to use for any type of real precision 22 long rifle shooting, but one that I think is a great scope at that's fairly inexpensive. Um, it's not designed for 22s. It's actually, uh, it's the Bushnell AR optics. I believe they call it the two, two, three or five, five, six, um, model, something like that. But anyway, it's a four and a half to 18 power, four and a half to 18 by 40. It has an adjustable objective. Um, actually, no, take that back. I can't remember now. Now I've got to go look at it. I can't remember if it's an adjustable objective or a, uh, if it's actually a uh, side focus. That will tell you how big I am on the details and that this is being recorded on a Monday, which is <laughs> probably part of it as well. But the interesting thing about these scopes is I looked at one in a store back when they first came out. Um, and I just remember being really surprised by how clear the scope was. I mean, it was very, very clean, very clear, um, just easy to look through. And more importantly, it was also, um, you know, it, it was 
nice from the standpoint. Yeah, here we go. It does have a uh, side focus. I couldn't remember for sure. But uh, the important thing is it will focus down to 25 yards. Um, but anyway, when I was looking at it, it's got a, a real heavy uh, mill dot reticle uh, in it. And so the reason I say I wouldn't necessarily consider it to be ideal for anything requiring tremendous precision like bench rest, um, the, the reticle is sort of thick, but I've had great results with these scopes. And for an inexpensive scope, uh, I find it to be one that tracks really well. Uh, it's got tactical turrets, so th there's no zero stop or anything like that. But you do um, have the exposed turrets, and you know the tracking has been spot on. The clarity is there, and I just have not had any issues with them. So I came across one of those uh, in the safe that I I don't even remember what I had it on, but I put it on this 540x and was just, um, you know, thinking, well, we'll see what happens. Um, and so from that standpoint, when, when I went to the range, my entire goal was to take this little scope and see how, or, you know, these two rifles with these scopes, um, shooting SK standard, that, that known lot that I've had such great luck with. And from there, my goal was just to, you know, see what would happen. Um, and that little, that little bush nail, I just pulled up just as a really quick thing. I just was curious what those, those run. Um, they may have actually even changed this model a little bit since I bought mine, but uh, looks like the ones that I'm seeing online are somewhere around 175 to maybe $200. So they've actually went up in price quite a bit since, since I bought, uh, bought mine. But um the interesting thing, because if I remember correctly, I think I bought those things on sale for around 100 to $125. It was some crazy good deal. But I get to the range, um, got the 52 out first, and I was pumped, man. I, I, was, I, was, I was excited because <clears throat> really my expectation was it wasn't going to shoot well, and I'd just be able to wash my hands of it and you know trade it or sell it off or something like that. So I shot a couple rounds at uh, 25 yards, adjusted the scope, immediately went out to 50 yards and uh, fired one shot at 50 yards, adjusted the scope one more time for where um, it, I should be dead on. And the next round I shot, it took the center right out of the target. And so um, that kind of surprised me. So then I... Uh, shot one more round because that was the end of the fifth of uh, the five round magazine. And uh, basically I just made that hole in the center of the target a little bit bigger. So I loaded up a new magazine, went to a different target and proceeded to shoot a five shot group. That was just a little over a quarter inch center to center. Um, I was blown away by it. Now, one thing I wasn't expecting is the way that that scope mount sets up. The, there's a barrel. There's there's two screws that hold the the um, the rail onto the mounting block on the barrel, and then the cantilever hangs back over the top of the action. One unexpected thing that I had when shooting was each time you'd pull the trigger, the scope would vibrate up and down because 
of the, the weight distribution because there's nothing anchoring that rail in the back. Um, now I'm going to have to try to figure out something, a solution for that. But after shooting that rifle and seeing how well it shot, I can tell you 100% the Winchester has a home, as does that 8 to 32 Tasco. It's going to stay on there because they just go together. It's an old scope. It's an old rifle. Um, you know, it's definitely not the clearest scope I own. Um, but it just shot so well. It just seemed like such a great combination. So I'm totally blown away by it. Um, there's even a chance at some point this year, I'll probably will shoot that rifle in a match or two, just, just to see, um, how well it does, because some of the matches that I shoot are, um, they're timed, but they're not timed to the point that I couldn't shoot it, you know, dealing with five round magazines and especially one shooting from a bench, something like that. So anyway, totally blew me away. Well, I've, you know, with that happening, I, I still, I, I, I was still kind of hedging my bets a little bit thinking, well, who knows about this 540 um, X. I mean, you know, I, I dry fired it. Uh, some and the trigger seemed pretty good. The Winchester trigger was great. Um, I don't know. Um, there's all these different triggers for the, the Winchesters, and I don't know anything about mine. Um, <laughs> I never even bothered to pull it out of the stock. I can just tell you it's really good. So um, I did the same process with the Remington, shot at 25 yards, just the scope, shot it again, um, got fairly close to point of aim, took it out to 50 and um shot a few, it took a I think three three shots to get it to the center of the target um and then i proceeded to shoot some groups with it and let me tell you that little rifle and scope combo absolutely blew me away um the fact that it's such a lightweight rifle and like I said, that little Bushnell scope is a great scope to begin with. But I shot several groups, uh, five-shot groups with that rifle, and they were all hovering in that, um, you know, half-inch to three-eighths inch range. Um, I feel like if I'd had if if the reticle had a little bit finer, or if the reticle was a little finer, might be able to shrink that just a little bit. But I can assure you those groups were perfectly fine with me. Um, so that rifle has now found a home that, and that was never the plan. Like I said, that both of these rifles have been listed on Rimfire Central multiple times. And, um, you know, thankfully because I never did shoot them, <laughs> uh, I couldn't tell anybody how they shot. And so, you know, they've ended up staying with me, but you know, I would just encourage you, if you if you're you know still at home and you're looking for stuff to do dust off some of those old rifles dust off some old scopes maybe you got some scopes on some rifles that don't really go together very well and you want to swap them out um you know there's so many different things that you can do and like i said i took a uh, a morning and mounted those scopes up and everything and then that afternoon was at the range and it's probably one of the most rewarding days I've had. And I can't tell you when, um, 
I mean, will these rifles shoot with my and shoot some of my voodoo's? Nah, probably not. Especially as they're set up, you know, at 50 yards, yeah, no, there won't be a lot of difference. But once you start stretching things out, maybe, maybe not. Uh, the scopes would definitely be the limiting factor, especially when it comes to dialing at distance, because like the little Bushnell doesn't have a ton of elevation. And of course, the um, uh, that Tasco definitely does not. But what I can tell you is that both of these were absolute shockers to me. Um, the 52 shouldn't have been because they have such a reputation for accuracy. But at the same time, it was because of the fact that, like I said, mine's been modified, you know, stock's been repaired, all that stuff. So with all that being said, man, if you've got, if you've got some old rim fires or some old scopes or something like that, I would encourage it, man, give it, you know, give it a shot. See what happens. Take them out. Um, you, you might be really surprised. But the other thing that I would also add uh, from this is just if you have a, uh, you know, if you've got a, a scope, maybe it's higher magnification, but you've got one that you know holds true, um, even if it's not the perfect setup for that particular rifle, you know, for long-term use, the whole concept of that, having that slave scope, you know, that, that article, well, like I said, it, that article is probably at least 20 or 25 years old, but it, it stuck with me and that Tasco through the years has been on dozens and dozens of rifles and has always been very beneficial to me figuring out you know, what kind of accuracy a rifle could produce. And the same thing holds true for the ammo as well. Um, you know, we talk about it a lot in the groups and on the forums, how whenever you find a lot that shoots great in a rifle, you should buy as much of it as you can afford. But what I find is even more important to me is when I find a lot of ammo that shoots great in a rifle, that's cool but I want to see what it will do in multiple rifles because if it shoots really well in multiple rifles, it's so much more valuable to me. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm trying to go towards a, a simpler approach instead of having 10 or 15 different rifles and 10 or 15 different types of ammo and lots of ammo, one for each rifle. I would much rather have, you know, five or 10 rifles that are designed for the types of shooting I enjoy, the NRL 22 PRS style shooting and, and then some others that are sporters for silhouette and for hunting. I would much rather have lesser rifles, but the ones that are designed specifically for what I enjoy doing and equally important, if I can simplify things a lot by finding a particular uh, type of ammo that shoots well and all of them or a majority of them, I can simplify things so much more. So, you know, those are just a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, a little bit of rambling, uh, pandemic rambling, if you will. But, you know, it's, it's interesting um, as we have the time, you know, kind of working from home or hanging out at home or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I know some people have said or have made, um, a lot of changes and done lots of different things. Um, 
others have really kind of just, you know, checked out and, and there's nothing right or wrong about however you handle it. It's what works best for you. But, you know, there are so certain things that we can do. I've talked in a previous episode about dry firing and, um, you know, the, the DFAT system that I picked up, which has just been phenomenal. I mean, I'm so, so impressed by that thing. Um, but there's just, there's so many things that we can do. And so if you have some old rifles or some old ammo or old scopes or things like that, give them a shot. You may be really surprised. I mean, I can absolutely tell you that um, for those two rifles, I, I will never do lot testing. Um, I know that they shoot that lot of SK well. And those rifles aren't going to get shot a ton. So I know that I'm not going to have to worry about running out of that lot anytime soon because the lot, you know, the rifles I shoot the most, uh, I don't shoot those or that lot in. Um, I've, I've shot Center X and, and a few other things that shoot as well or better. But, uh, man, just, I can't encourage you enough. Check out some of those older rifles. You know, I talked about them uh, on a previous episode and how some of them aren't necessarily geared for the type of shooting we do, but there's a lot of things you can do with them. And, and I would, I would encourage you to check it out. So with all that being said, talk a little bit about our sponsor, Get Accurate Payments. As you've heard me mention previously, in the business world and especially in the payments world, credit card processing, quite a few companies are not considered to be Second Amendment friendly. They are not uh, in the least bit interested in working with businesses that have any ties to the firearms industry whether it's a business that's selling guns online or guns in a store in person, or even if you're not selling guns, but you're only selling accessories, scopes, ammunition, um, things like that. A lot of the payments companies are not second amendment friendly. And because of that will uh, shut down or not even allow a business to process credit card payments. If it is discovered that they are, part of the firearms industry. At Get Accurate Payments, that is not the case. They are a very pro-Second Amendment company. They are very gun-friendly, um, which is why the name is Get Accurate Payments, uh, because Townsend Willing said that only accurate rifles are interesting. And while I find that all rifles are interesting, getting paid for your work and getting paid for what you do, that is incredibly interesting and vital to the success of any business. So if you operate a business, especially one in the firearms industry, but any type of business, Get Accurate Payments can be incredibly helpful in terms of getting you your payments in a time efficient manner and at a low cost for processing those payments. So head on over to getaccuratepayments.com, check it out. Uh, there's a contact form. You can fill something out and don't worry. You're not going to get spammed with tons of phone calls and emails and people harassing you, trying to sell you credit card processing. They have a very professional staff and someone will be happy to reach out to you, talk about what they offer, learn about your business. And if you're a good fit, fantastic. If you're not, there's no pressure whatsoever. We wouldn't work with them if they weren't the best we've been able to find. So again, getaccuratepayments.com, check them out.
All right, guys, that's going to wrap everything up for this episode. In some future episodes, we're going to be talking to some different folks in the industry. I think you guys are going to really like uh, what they have to say. And specifically, we're going to talk about uh, some changes that are coming up um, for the new match season. Uh, You'll be hearing more about that very soon as well. So that's it for this episode. Stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, don't touch your face. Cheers, guys.